0: Let's pray. Lord God, we thank You again for Your Word. We thank You that in it You speak truthfully to us. That in it You give us comfort for today and hope for tomorrow. Lord, I ask that as Your Word is preached, that I would preach faithfully. That Your Word would go forth by the power of Your Spirit and give life to Your people. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. I was struck again this morning as Bruce was reading the text how wonderful um, the imagery is of so much of the minor, minor prophets. We have a tendency in modern life today to look at everybody who came before us and be intellectually snobbish, like we were so much better educated uh, and smarter than they were. And yet, um, you are hard-pressed to find Anybody who writes with such wonderful imagery today as you do from the the ancients, including what we find in Scripture. And what we find in Micah 4 and 5 is really a break in the uh, main storyline of the book. As I've said to you over our weeks here, uh, Micah is really a courtroom drama. The Lord is called forward in Micah 1 as a witness against the people of Israel and Judah. And when we get back into chapter 6, that, that trial is going to continue again. And we'll get into some famous passages and verses at that point. But Micah 4 and 5 is kind of an interlude that kind of offers us some hope. Right, chapters 1, 2, and 3 was a lot of judgment as the minor prophets normally are. and But 4 and 5, we get some hope. We get some promises for the people. And everyone has a vision of paradise. You have a vision of what the good life is. What would be that perfect day? Or what would be a perfect family? Or your perfect job? Or your perfect relaxing evening? Or vacation? Or a perfect world? And we often, as discomp- we are often discontent people. Right? You think the thing you, you've just got is going to be that perfect thing, and then the grass is always greener somewhere else. You're like, now that I have it, it's really not as perfect as I thought it was going to be. And so uh, I want that, that next thing. And that is why many movements or nations or ideologies who offer a path that say, this is the perfect life. Right? This is how you can get it. This is why they're appealing. And it's also why they can be very, very uh, dangerous. Because we are all dealing with the syndrome of paradise lost. Right? We've lost paradise. We, we had it in Eden. We had a perfect world. But through rebellion and sin, we lost it. But our hearts continue to yearn. For it. We want peace. We want happiness. We want fulfillment. And those things, in and of themselves, are not wrong uh, to desire. We just often go about trying to fulfill them in the wrong way. And this is the reason why ideologies that offer a formula to achieve paradise are both appealing and dangerous. The most obvious example from the last century is the ideology of Marxism in political. Of idea of communism. Karl Marx argued that in response to the real economic problems of his day, and there were real economic problems in that day, and there are today, because while well, this world has fallen, there will always be. But he argued that through revolution and the continued spilling of blood, and over the course of history and getting rid of things like private property, and that through eventual cycles of bloodshed and revolution, violent bloodshed, that eventually we would reach paradise. It's okay, we can kill all these people, because eventually we'll get there. This is the cost of how we get our paradise. And so, with that, we have the Bolshevik Revolution and many other communist revolutions of the last hundred years, resulting in over a hundred million people murdered and many more millions oppressed. And they still haven't reached that paradise that was promised to them. We as Christians affirm the desire for paradise is good. That aching you have in your heart when we get bad news. That aching you have for peace when you come home from work and then your kids don't let you have it. That aching you have for a world where everyone gets along. Or as, a, what was his name saying? An imagine Imagine a world like this. Why is that song so appealing? Because we all long for it. But How do we get it? How do we reach that ideal life? It is here that we see that Christianity offers something completely different. Instead of taking other people's lives and trying to find that revolution, or as the new Marxism does, trying to cancel people out of culture, and then if through this revolution we will, we will find that perfect world, Christianity says, lay down your life. Lay down your vision of paradise and pray that Christ's kingdom would come. Not Levi's kingdom, not John's kingdom, not anybody's kingdom, but Christ's. And that His will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that's really what we're seeing in Micah 4. Micah 4 gives us a glimpse of the kingdom of God. In the midst of all of the judgment of this book, Micah 4, and then again in the next chapter, we get a vision of what the Kingdom of God will be like. And the hope begins with a rebuilt, reconstituted Mount Zion. If you have your Bibles open, if you look at the verses right before Micah 4, the end of Micah 3, that ends with a description of Mount Zion laying in heaps of ruins. So you move from this picture of God saying, we're going to judge you because your leaders are terrible, and the whole Mount of Zion is going to be like piles of wood stacked upon each other, a desolate, barren place. And then Micah 4 picks up, and we get this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and the people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come! Let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may, that He may teach us His ways, that we may walk in His paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So Micah says through the Lord, or the Lord through Micah, that the latter days, this is what they're going to be like. Now that term, latter days, probably get some of you to sit up on the edge of your seat. It's a Loaded term, theological term. And we often think of the latter days as merely the time immediately before Christ's second coming. But the New Testament doesn't speak about the latter times as just the certain period of years right before Christ comes. In fact, it's far more broad than that. Listen to some of these quotes from the New Testament. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 10 11, these things which were written for you are for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. 1 Peter 1:20 But he appeared in these last times for the sake of you. 1 John 2:18 Children, it is the last hour. Hebrews two. But in these last days he has spoken to us by his son Clearly, according to the New Testament, in some significant way, you and I have been living in the last days since Christ's first coming. Since his first coming, you and I, for 2,000 years, have been living in the latter days. But in these latter days, Micah continues, Mount Zion will be raised up again and become the highest mountain. The nations will come and worship and learn the law of the Lord. Again, chapter 3, Mount Zion utterly destroyed. Chapter 4, God is going to rebuild Mount Zion and the nations will come to Mount Zion and worship the Lord and learn His law. This idea of the nations coming in is really at the heart of the mission of God. When God founded Israel... He said that he was going to found them so that they would not become like the nations, but that the nations would become like Israel. That the nations would go to Israel and they would be Israel would be a light to the nation. That Israel would be a nation of priests to an unbelieving world. An unbelieving world needs priests so that they can know God. But The problem is, as you read the story of Israel, instead of them evangelizing the world, they were evangelized by the world. Instead of them transforming the nations to be more like Israel, Israel became more like the nations. That is something as a church we need to guard against. And we need to listen. So many church movements are about making the church look as close to the world as possible. Then we'll reach the world. The Bible says the job of the church is to make the world more like the church, not the church more like the world. God foretells a time here when the nations will come to Mount Zion and they will come in faith. They will receive salvation. They will hear the word. They will hear truth. And they will know God and his law. Brothers and sisters, that joyous picture we are a partial f- fulfillment of. Right now, you sitting here, if you look at church history, We go from 500 followers at Christ's ascension to today, millions and millions of people from every major nation of the world gather together on Sunday morning in everything from grand cathedrals to underground tunnels to worship at Mount Zion. Levi, you may be thinking, you may say, Levi, I've never been to Jerusalem. I've never seen Mount Zion, except in Bible pictures. What are you talking about? Consider how the New Testament, again, deals with what Mount Zion is. The city of God. Consider Hebrews 12, 22-24. But you have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gatherings, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enthroned in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. In the New Testament, the church is equated with Mount Zion. Every time the church gathers in Christ's name, in faithful obedience, we are told Christ is with us that Christ through His Spirit is with us this morning. And every time we gather to worship Christ as Lord, we are gathering at Mount Zion, the temple of God on this earth. And literally millions and millions of people from every nation go to Mount Zion every Sunday morning. We live in a time of fulfillment. You live in a time where you are surrounded by God's promises from Thousands of years ago are being, fu- are being fulfilled in your midst. And you thought you were just coming to church on Sunday morning. In the New Testament, two things are equated as fulfillments of the temple in Jerusalem. The first is Christ himself. Christ in his earthly ministry, he said, Tear down this temple, and in three days I will raise it back up. And the Pharisees are like, what are you talking about? And the text tells us he's referring to his body. Why is he referring to his body? Well, the temple was God dwelling with the people. Jesus is God dwelling with the people. Second, the New Testament equates the church with the temple. Ephesians two, eleven through 22 says that we are being built into a spiritual temple, the house of the Lord on earth. Why are both Christ and the church given to us as fulfillments of the temple? Well, because the church is described as Christ's body. You are the body of Christ on this earth. You are the temple of God on this earth. And so we have gathered this morning at Mount Zion. And we have done so in the presence of our Lord and with millions of saints all around the world. And so we have a promise of the Lord being fulfilled in our midst. And so we see the nations, the peoples, coming to the Lord God and to Mount Zion through His church. And in this... The process of the world has changed. The gospel has gone out. The nations have been and are being and will be converted. This is an inevitability inevitability that God God will win and that the kingdom of God will come in its fullness. Brothers and sisters, as as Jim prayed for our, our missionaries this morning, this is exactly why we have a missionary movement. This is exactly why, if you feel called to the mission field, or you know individuals who have, you can go in confidence. God has said, the nations will come to Mount Zion. Therefore, go. As the missionaries go, they don't go just vaguely hoping that maybe there's some people out there who will believe, but that God has promised there are people in every nation who will believe. Therefore, go. And so it has been, and so it will be. This reality uh, comes that God is, in fact, conquering the nations. He overcomes them. And he overcomes them in a unique way. Think for a moment about Psalm chapter 2. We preached on this a few months ago. And ask this question. Why do the nations rage? Why do they plot in vain against the Lord and his anointed? This is a reoccurring problem throughout history. The nations are wicked. The nations are evil. The nations plot against God and against his people. But now consider Psalm 2 in light of Micah 4, verses 3 and 4. He, that is God, shall judge between many peoples, and he shall decide disputes for strong nations far away. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall there be, or the, shall they learn war anymore. But they will sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree. And no one will make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This passage contains that famous imagery of the end of war, the end of strife, the end of evil in general. The nations will put up their swords, they will put up their spears, they will actually transform those spears and swords into farming tools. No more soldiers, a lot more farmers. People will be able to sit under their own fig trees and not be afraid that they will be stolen from. Put it into modern parlance, you'll be able to sit in downtown and not be afraid you're going to be mugged or held up. This is the paradise God is offering. This peace will be so thorough that men And women will go about their lives and not be afraid anymore. And really what's going on here in Micah 4 is a citation of Isaiah chapter 2. You find this almost exactly word for word in Isaiah 2. I told you in our first sermon, Isaiah and Micah were contemporaries. They're both telling us the same thing. But I want you to note, how is the Lord going to conquer the nations? So this is what's going to happen. No more raging nations, but how? For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He will defeat and conquer the nations through His Word. And again, we are struck with the reality that the word, Word, in Scripture, is used in two very uh, different ways. Or to refer to two different realities. The first is the eternal Word, Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God that through Christ God is going to subdue the nations? And the second way the word "word" is used in Scripture is to refer to God's spoken word, His written word, Scripture. Through the declaring of God or through the declaring of Christ in His Word and by us using words, the nations fall, and so God will bring paradise through Christ and through the preaching of His Word. Again, we're brought back to that great commission. Go to the nations, Jesus says. Preach the word. Teach them to obey everything I have commanded. Baptize them and do this, Christ says, because I have all authority in heaven and earth and I will be with you to the end of the age. And so the nations have been conquered, are being conquered, and will be conquered. All will repent and confess that Jesus is Lord, or they will be defeated by another word of the Lord, the word of judgment. Again, if you read history at all, you read church history at all, you realize that as the apostles spread and the missionaries spread, Rome fell to the word. The pagan tribes of Europe fell to the word. Northern Africa fell to the word. And then we had the modern missionary movement and people all across this world heard the word and nations were converted. But there's another word of judgment that is offered to the nations who remain rebellious. In Revelation 19, the rebellious kings and nations gather to fight Christ and Christ comes down out of heaven With his army, and unlike most generals, he rides in front of his army instead of behind it, and he comes and he destroys them with a sword from his mouth. Jesus does not have a sword coming out of his mouth, it's a picture, it's his words. By his word, he will slay the nations, and they will lose. When the nations are conquered, the kingdom will come and be established in all of its glory. Right now, we see increments of it. We see glimpses of it. But one day, it will be here fully. So world peace is offered. Personal peace is promised. That is the promise of the kingdom. It is the desire of our hearts. But how does it come? Verse 5, For all the peoples walk, each in the name of its God, but we will walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Micah notes that for now, people will continue to follow their own gods, but that we are called to trust the Lord God forever. That He alone can bring that Mount Zion. That He alone will draw in the nations. That He alone can defeat evil. We look for paradise everywhere else but here from the one who can actually bring it. I'm struck by this difference here. you got Christianity which is a religion of world conquest. That conquest comes through the preaching of the word. You have Islam, which is a heresy of Christianity. Prophet Muhammad said, this is actually what Christianity was supposed to be. The Bible got corrupted. And it is also a religion of world conquest. But not through the declaration of the word. Through the sword. Through the sword. We look for the swords to be transformed into plowshares. And this prophecy tells us that God will do it through the declaration of his word as the nations believe in him. There is only one God that can offer this, and that is the God of Scripture. To make a perfect world, we cannot turn to ourselves. We need a perfect God. So why is God, though, telling Israel about this now? Right, the first three chapters of Micah, very dark, very gloomy. Why is this vision given to them now? Consider verses 6-8. through eight. In that day, declares the Lord, I will assemble the lame and gather those who have been driven away and those whom I have afflicted. And the lame I will make the remnant and those who are cast off a strong nation. And the Lord will reign over them in Mount Zion from this time forth and forevermore. And you, O tower of the flock, hill of the daughter of Zion, to you shall it come. The former dominion shall come. Kingship for the daughter of Jerusalem. God tells Israel, as she is about to go into captivity, that he will regather his people, that though they be rejected, weak, and crippled, that he is going to make them into a strong nation. And they will be his people, and they will again dwell in Mount Zion for all eternity. He will heal his people. He will heal the lame. He will heal the sick. He will bind their wounds. And he will reverse the effects of sin. That line there should sound very, very familiar to you. This is an echo of what the ministry of Christ was on earth. Why did Jesus go around uh, Jerusalem... In Judea and just heal people why would he do that was he just showing off was he just saying hey look what I can do no he did it for two reasons first to fulfill these promises so that people might know who the king is And John the Baptist asks hey he sends messengers to Jesus hey are you really the one Jesus says look what I'm doing right? the lame are walking again the blind are seeing again Jesus did those things so that the prophecies might be fulfilled. The second reason Jesus did those things is because those things are the very character and nature of his kingdom. There will be no blind in his kingdom. There will be no lame in his kingdom. There will be no sin in his kingdom. There will be no evil in his kingdom because he will fix it all. Jesus' miracles are a glimpse of what his kingdom is like. That the curse is overthrown. And so we should note the strong language here. He promises that the former dominion will return. Dominion is another important theological word. God instructs that humanity is to have dominion over all of creation. Genesis 1. Go forth, be fruitful, multiply. Have dominion. Take dominion over this earth. And God says to Israel that here there will be a restoration of that creative process of dominion. The command was first given to Adam, but Adam fell way short of that. But the second better Adam, Jesus Christ, will bring that eternal dominion. The language also carries with it this idea of that shepherd king. We saw first in chapter 2. God will gather his people like a flock, and the king will return and have dominion. The Old Testament par excellence of a shepherd king of course, is David. And in 2 Samuel 7, God promises that someone like David will come from David's line. So Israel is looking for this second shepherd king to come. Of course, you and I know this to be Christ, who is the good shepherd, who gathers his flock, whose sheep know his voice, who he binds up the wounds of, who he guides, and who he lays down his life for. The people of God will conquer the nations through the preaching of the word and through the blood of their shepherd king. They will do so because God has said that they will. And again, as we gather on Sunday morning, we are a testimony to that truth. Christ has overcome in your life already. He's already converted the nations. And he's still converting the nations. And so we gather to declare the blood of the Lamb, the Lamb who was slain, who is now risen, and at the right hand of the Father. Consider the final verses here of this passage. 9-11 through Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Has your counselor perished? That pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. Now many nations are assembled against you, saying, Let her be defiled, and let her eyes gaze upon Zion. But they do not know the thoughts of the Lord. They do not understand his plan. That he has gathered them as sheaths to the threshing floor. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion, for I will make your horn iron, and I will make your hooves bronze. You shall beat in many pieces the peoples, and you shall devote their grain to the Lord and their wealth to the Lord of the whole earth. God describes the coming judgment upon Israel. Why are you crying out loud? Do you have no king now? Do you have no counselor? Is no one going to help you? This is why He gives them this vision. Chapters 1, 2, 3. Their leaders are terrible. It is as if they have no leaders. It is their leaders who are leading them into judgment. And God promises in chapter 4, a new, better leader will come. But now, you are going to go to Babylon. But even as He tells them that, There's that promise of rescue. I think what should really strike us here in the imagery of this passage. Again, end of chapter 3, the nations are assembled around Mount Zion to destroy them. End of chapter 4, the nations are assembled around Mount Zion to destroy Mount Zion. Verse 1, 2 of chapter 4, the nations are assembled around Mount Zion to worship God. He's bringing a transformation. He gives Israel this promise as a hope to cling to in the interim. A hope to cling to when they have no good leaders, when they're in Babylon, when they're in a foreign nation. And I think it is here that we see our greatest point of application. Though we live in a time of progressing fulfillment, though the nations are in part coming in, they are not all the way in. Many still fight. Many still have their swords. Many are still raging against the Lord and his anointed. This is life in this age, in the latter days, until the fullness of the kingdom arrives. But it is here that you and I are likewise to cling. God has given you the promise. God has said what is going to happen. No nation that remains rebellious against the Lord will stand. The nations will all fall to the shepherd king. As surely as Babylon fell, as surely as Persia fell, as surely as Rome fell, so will any nation that raises its sword against the Lord's anointed and his people. And so we can look at our current darkness. We can look at, in no uncertain words, the evil leaders we have at state levels right now in this state. What they are rushing through our Congress and Senate in Minnesota is unspeakable evil. We can look and say the shepherd king will win. Babylon rises, Babylon falls. Persia rises, Persia falls. Rome rises, Rome falls. This kingdom is not shaken. We therefore are called to live with a bold confidence. You are called to live, even if you are stuck in Babylon. Knowing that Christ wins. Knowing that the way to conquer is through the Word. He has commissioned us to go and declare that victory. We like to think that the major events in life are mostly geopolitical. That that's what determines the course of the world. That it's elections and wars that set the course of history. All of those things are in the hands of our Lord. All of them are important, but they are not the most important. It is the faithfulness of God's people that transforms the world. It is the preaching and the living out of the gospel that transforms the world. It is the raising up of our children in the fear and instruction of the Lord that changes the world. It is the regular attending of church that changes the world. The daily repenting of your sins to one another. That changes the world. The taking of communion and declaring that Christ came, that Christ died, and that Christ is coming again. That changes the world. The bringing of Christ's message and His Lordship into all of life. These things change the world. These small acts of faithfulness is how God moves to bring the nations to Mount Zion. Not with their swords, but to worship. By the preaching of His Word and by the power of His Spirit, God's people... Already, an odd ragtag group of people from every nation bring in even more. This may seem like foolishness to the world. It does. And so many empires and nations have already, though, been tossed on the ash heap, ash heap of history. But the nation of the Lord, a strong nation, the church remains. No one in their time thought Assyria would fall. No one in their time thought Babylon would fall. No one thought Rome would fall. The USSR used to keep the United States awake at night and taught kids to hide under desks because of a nuclear bomb. Like, that was going to help. But the USSR sought to stamp out the church, and the USSR was stamped out. I read several articles this week about how the impending doom of China is on On the horizon because they're about to go off a demographic cliff because they've killed so many of their children and their society is about to flip china is the most heinous offender against the church in our age and she will fall nazi germany looked like they were going to take over the world and she fell the ash heap of history those who were once feared and deemed powerful are now nothing but a distant memory but mount zion The city of God presses on in encampments all throughout this world. Though she is insulted, murdered, persecuted, mocked, and canceled, Mount Zion continues and will not be shaken. It is the city of the Lord and it is breaking into this world more and more. A kingdom that will never be shaken. Brothers and sisters, that is why Micah 4 is in your Bible. That you might see that. And that you might live with a future and present hope. That God has said, I will do this. And he's already done so much of it. And he will continue to do it. Therefore, don't lose heart. Go forth in boldness, declaring that the shepherd king, he is Lord. And he is Lord over everything. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you again this morning that you have offered us a picture of your kingdom. May that picture reside in our hearts as we go about our seemingly insignificant chores and daily routines. But may we see those transformed knowing that they all hover around the mountain of the Lord. May we be that type of people. That we would do the small things in faith. And that Lord, we might see your kingdom advance in our hearts, our lives, our communities, and our world. We pray that your kingdom would come. That your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, that we might be a small tool to help bring that reality more real in this day and age. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.